This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our first-time guest, V.P. Morris, an award-winning horror and thriller novelist. Her first two dark thriller novels, Shadowcast and Dead Ringer, are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Super psyched to be here. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm really interested to hear how you guys liked this movie because I know horror is not always your jam. So I'm kind of interested to see how maybe I pushed you outside the comfort zone a little bit and just your general reactions. Yeah, you definitely did on that. (laughs) Dad, if I can recount, and maybe I might be wrong about this, but I think this might be either our third or fourth horror film, depending on how you define things. We had a really great guest session last year when we revisited Jaws that argued for that to also be included as a horror film, which I'm still a little bit on the fence, but he kind of swayed me more into the, yeah, it could be very considered that. Mm -hmm. We did Psycho last year for our Alfred Hitchcock month. So this might only be the third. Silence of the Lambs, which I count. Oh yeah, sure. Mm Mm-hmm. I forgot about that one. So yes, absolutely. So I guess maybe four. This is an area we've talked about getting into more just because comedy, horror, some of these smaller genres really aren't appreciated sometimes among the greatest movies. They might be mentioned in some of the larger lists, but often are kind of forgotten when it comes to the the greater list. They're never mentioned in the top tens with your godfathers or uh, singing in the rain, for instance. So as we do with all of our first-time guests, though, before we jump into the matter at hand, we have a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you a bit. So first, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I am a thriller and horror novelist. I also write short stories, which have been featured on a bunch of podcasts and um, just out in, you know, the internet ether. I'm a super huge fan of of movies in general, but horror specifically, and you wouldn't really know it because I'm I am like a really quiet, shy person, and I was like a super scaredy, nervous child. Like everything freaked me out, and I kind of weirdly found myself really loving the horror genre. And, and at first, it was terrifying, and now, like I don't know, it's it's almost comforting in a way. So I absolutely I adore these movies in a in a very weird way. Excellent. So then what is your favorite movie and why? My favorite movie is The Shining because of the extensive attention to detail that Kubrick paid to, I mean, all of his movies, but that one in particular. I don't know if there is another movie, correct me if I'm wrong, that has as many conspiracy theories behind it. I mean, there's whole documentaries about The Shining is about faking the moon landing or it's about the invention of the Federal Reserve. Like it's a all of these insane theories out there that people think this movie is about. And I really haven't ever come across one that has the same amount of like, oh, this is actually a confession in a movie form. 
And just, you know, to this day, fans are kind of debating about, you know, was was there ghosts or was it just Jack going crazy? And also as a writer myself, I kind of relate to the just wanting to get some work done and your family interrupting you all the time. <laughs> a movie we have yet to cover, but as uh, our rubric is named Stanley, one we will eventually get to. Good. So then the last question that we always ask, what makes a good movie for you? Um, anything that really takes you on a journey in another person's shoes that really can like lock you into a human experience and find even if you are absolutely nothing like the character in real life, you can relate to what they're going through. And also, um, like I am a big fan of like attention to detail and subtext and symbolism. So anything that has more than just the surface level going on that there is, you know, so much love and care put into a, a movie by the whole cast and crew that they're not just reading lines off of a script. They're really thinking about it on a different level. Excellent. Shall we dig in then to our movie of the evening? Yeah. I'm full. Then tonight, we apply our patent pending Stanley rubric to the genre redefining horror film Scream from 1996, directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, starring Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, and Rose McGowan. This movie was the highest grossing slasher film for almost 22 years until Halloween from 2018 and was nominated for six Saturn Awards, winning three. V, you picked Scream and you're a horror enthusiast and novelist. Why did you pick this movie? I originally actually wanted to pick the shining when we first started talking but i just felt overwhelmed because it's such like it's such a behemoth that i was like we could be i just don't know if i could narrow my points down because i could write like a whole book on how much i love the shining and all the weird stuff that's going on in the subtext and how like awful stanley kubrick is to work with so i was like you know what let's take it down a notch and go to scream because i at least can clarify my points i think a little bit better and also since you guys are both movie lovers you know, this movie is is for movie lovers. That's who the target audience is, even if you're not horror fans like the full-on target demographic. You have to, at least I would hope you would appreciate that Wes Craven and his team put in so much love and care to, to make this movie for the fans and that there's so many references and little hints and and the character randy which we'll get into is is like the stand-in for the audience so i thought this was a good movie to pick for people who just generally like movies because that's the whole kind of thesis of the the movie i absolutely agree and not to kind of preempt one of our standard standby questions but it really is a celebration of horror films by undermining and playing with everything that had made them kind of a cliche up to that point Mm-hmm. The one thing I noted, and it's been a while since I'd watched one, I had went to the theater in high school and saw the original Friday the 13th when it was released in theaters. So I'm going to say that's how much I'm dating myself. 1980? Yeah. I think I was a sophomore, I would have been a sophomore going into my junior year of high school. Now you're really dating yourself. Yeah. Anyway, so, but the thing I noted about this... Hitchcock tells a story about suspense is, I mean, you have this situation where you know there's a bomb and it explodes versus suspense, which is, you know, there's a bomb there and you have no idea when it's going to explode. And the thing that I've noted about this film and thinking back of some of the others, 
there's a level of suspense that goes throughout most of the film. It's like taking the formula of suspense that Hitchcock used at times as vehicles within his films and making it broader. Because I think there may be two points in this film where the suspense, you're not like waiting for uh, somebody to be slashed at that moment in time. And it creates because you're like looking throughout the film for when is it going to happen again? Where is it going to come from? The term you're looking for is suspense and surprise. Okay. Yes. Surprise is the explosion of the bomb. Yes. When you didn't know it was there. Suspense is knowing the bomb is actually under the table and waiting for it to explode. Yeah. And I mean, and without getting into too much of the detail, a couple of points, you know, when they're back in school after the, the first two teens are killed, there's a little bit of calm there. And then when they're first getting ready to organize the party at the house, those are the only two points in the film that I could think of that it wasn't like it was suspense because both of those were vehicles to set up the rest of the film. Well, I was expecting a lot of jump scares in this because it's a fairly famous horror film. And for the most part, I assume that's like a part of this genre, which to be fair, I am not somebody who watches a lot of these very often, if ever. So to not have very many of those was a little bit surprising. Yet I would actually argue that there's a lot of suspense to the entire movie. And every time the phone rings, I would get tense because, okay, she's laying, or what was it? She's napping on the couch in the middle of the afternoon before the attack. And it's her friend the first time. And so you feel relieved. And then you know when the phone rings the second time, it's not going to be the friend. Yeah, that's a good moment. It's a creepy moment. I'm yelling at Helen Henry Winkler to look behind the door. <laughs> Fonzie should have seen it coming. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know. So then, Dad, we don't have any relationship to this movie, so this question is a little bit neutered compared to normal, but V, what is your relationship to this movie? So it was this the first time watched for both of you then? Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. Scream virgins. <laughs> Which apparently is a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. It means you're going to survive. <laughs> so the thing about this movie is I don't remember a time where it didn't exist because it came out in 96 and I was four. So it was like already pretty much embedded in the culture by the time I was a teenager and starting to get interested in horror movies. And But, you know, the third movie came out in 2000. So like it was pretty established. The scream mask, like I remember boys would get in trouble at my school for wearing it to school on Halloween and getting in trouble and trying to freak everyone out. So it was kind of like always there, I guess, the way that Michael Myers might have always been there for like a, a younger generation. And I at first thought it was like a dumb slasher movie that it was just like the rest of just like, oh, there's a creepy guy and he's going to try to kill a bunch of hot chicks, whatever. And I also saw a scary movie first before I saw Scream, which is the parody of it. And they parody it almost like perfectly. So I felt like I knew it before I even saw it. And then I finally sat down to watch it in my early 20s. And 
I realized that it's way smarter than just like, oh, a jump scare and there's a creepy guy in the corner. It, it's brilliant. And I've, I've just respected it ever since then. And I've watched, I've seen them all. I saw the fifth one in theaters uh, this past winter. So I'm, I, I'm now like a diehard Scream fan. And I think there is at some point an expected sixth. Is that right? Yep. In March, there'll be a sixth one. Okay. So not too far off uh, for, mm-hmm. I don't think dad's going to go f- through the next uh, five installments, but uh, we might be able to get another one in. So dad, let's give a little bit more background on the movie then. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Casey Becker, Drew Barrymore, and her boyfriend are viciously slaughtered by a mysterious killer in a Halloween costume. Another girl, Sydney, Nave Campbell, is nearly killed, and reporter Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox, suspects that it's the same killer responsible for the rape and murder of Sydney's mother a year earlier. Sydney's boyfriend, Billy, Skeet Ulrich, is accused as the murderer, but is released when the killer contacts Sydney while Billy is in jail. When Billy is released, Sydney and all of her friends go to a party at their friend Stu's house, Matthew Lillard. However, they may have just mistakenly stepped right into the killer's hands. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Wes Cravens as the director, Kevin Williamson as writer, Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott, David Arquette as Dewey Riley, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, Matthew Lillard as Stu Mocker, Rose McGowan as Tatum Riley, Skeet Ulrich as Billy Loomis, Jamie Kennedy as Randy Meeks, W. Earl Brown as Kenny Brown, Joseph Whip as Sheriff Burke, Liev Schreiber as Cotton Weary, and I think this might actually be his first film role, Drew Barrymore as Casey Becker, Roger L. Jackson as the voice of Ghostface, and Henry Winkler as Arthur Hembree, uncredited. Recognition for this movie, Scream was released on December 20th, 1996. Bob Weinstein ordered that the film be released on December 20th, 1996, a date others were critical of as it was the Christmas period where seasonal and family films were more prevalent. Weinstein argued that this was in the film's favor as it meant that horror fans and teenagers had nothing interesting to watch during the December period. When Scream's first weekend takings amounted to only $6 million, it was considered that this release date gamble had failed. But the following week, Takings did not drop but increased and continued to increase in the following weeks, leading to a total U.S. gross of over $100 million and high critical praise. The film opened in 1,413 theaters, taking in an estimated $6.4 million in its opening weekend, opening in second against Beavis and Butthead Do America, and almost $87 million in its initial release. It was re-released to theaters on April 11, 1997, and accrued a further $16.2 million for a total domestic gross of $103 million and a worldwide lifetime gross of $173 million. In the United States, without adjusting for inflation, the film is the 20th highest grossing horror film and remained the highest grossing slasher film until it was surpassed by Halloween from 2018, directly followed by its sequels Scream 2 and Scream 3. Despite competition from other box office fairs such as Tom Cruise's Jerry Maguire and Tim Burton's Mars Attacks, It's released during the Christmas season, and Variety labeling it DOA before it was even released, Scream became the 15th highest-grossing film of 1996, well-placed among big-budget blockbusters released that year, such as Independence Day and Mission Impossible. 
It was shown in cinemas for nearly eight months after its release. Scream currently holds a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 65 rating on Metacritic, with a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? Scream was originally titled Scary Movie, which was later used for a parody of this movie and other pop culture horror films in the Scary Movie film franchise. The term Scary Movie is mentioned five times in the film. Did you know? Being a favorite of screenwriter Kevin Williamson, Molly Ringwald was offered the role of Sidney Prescott, but turned it down, saying she'd rather not be playing a high school student at the age of 27. I understand that. Did you know? Matthew Lillard was cast as Stu Mocker by chance after accompanying his then-girlfriend to an unrelated audition taking place elsewhere in the same building. Casting director Lisa Beach saw Lillard in the hallway and asked him to audition for the part. He got into the role with such incredible ferocity. Did you know? Drew Barrymore and Nev Campbell did not meet Roger Jackson, the actor who played the voice, before shooting commenced. Whenever they are talking on the phone to the killer, they are actually talking to him. In fact, none of the cast actually met him. Craven thought that would be better to bring out the shock reactions he needed from everyone when they heard that voice. Did you know? The use of caller ID increased more than threefold after the release of this film. Did you know? The party scene near the end of the film runs 42 minutes long, and it was shot over the course of 21 days from the time the sun set to the time it rose. After it wrapped, the crew had t-shirts made that read, I survived scene 118, which was the name of the scene during shooting. The cast and crew jokingly called it the longest night in horror history. Did you know? The film was sent to the MPAA over nine times for reconsideration, as they were going to slap the movie with an NC-17 rating, basically a death sentence for movies at the time. With each time, the MPAA made Wes Craven cut out more of the film's gore-heavy shots. Bob Weinstein eventually had to step in, which secured the film's R rating. Wes Craven wanted to know what Bob Weinstein had said to the MPAA to give the film its R rating. He told them to view it as a comedy and not a horror film. This completely changed the MPAA's viewpoint. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing one of the most celebrated musicals of all time, The Sound of Music from 1965, directed by Robert Wise, written by Ernest Lehman, music by Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein, and Erwin Coastal, and starring Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, let's jump to best performance. Dad, as one of the two virgins on this episode, who did you think performed the best? Uh, Nave Campbell. Um, she had a broader uh, responsibility, going from being more naive to being frightened to ultimately becoming kind of badass at the end. And uh, I thought she did a very good job. V, who did you have down as best performance? Um, I put Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers because I felt like she brought a level of like intensity and professionalism to the cast. Um, I mean, outside of Drew Barrymore, she's the most famous person at the time of the shooting. And I really felt like even though the younger actors who were less well-known at the time did a great job, I felt like she could tell that she was far more experienced at being like in a movie or being on set and being famous, essentially. 
And I like that she didn't shy away from playing Gale very aggressive and very bitchy because it's kind of sometimes hard to play that as a woman because it's just so like against how most women are like raised to be nice and sweet and she's not. So I liked that she was just all went went for it and was very in your face about everything she wanted to do. Yeah, I certainly could have nominated her if we had a category for least charismatic in this particular movie. <laughs> Uh, that being said, the one thing that really stuck out to me about this movie was the cinematography and being wide lensed constantly, but also the regular use of Dutch angles. The first thing that really throws you off in the beginning of the movie is where the camera tilts and lets you know that there is something wrong. And that just becomes the recurring theme throughout the course of the movie. You follow a character in almost this panoramic view through rooms so that you can get a lot of the background. Oh, is the killer going to jump out of that? Or is he be hiding behind that? And then it turns the angle on you just enough to keep you a little bit off kilter throughout the course of the movie. So I would have loved to nominate the cinematographer, except that he got fired before they did the final scene. So famously, he got let go because he tried to stand up for his own guys. Apparently, most of the cinematography was kind of out of focus. And so they wanted him to get rid of his entire crew before they filmed the final sequence and he wouldn't do it. So they fired him too. So I'm not even sure who filmed the final sequence, but then you have to give credit for Wes Craven for knowing exactly what he wanted out of this film, because I think this is incredibly unique looking for what horror films that I have seen. My best secondary performer, I had down actually Kevin Williamson. I think it takes a special talent and somebody who appreciates horror films to come up with something so subversive, but also comedic like this is. He had to bring in a lot of different cliches and know enough about all of the different horror franchises at, at a simultaneous note to be able to bring in Psycho, to bring in Friday the 13th, bring in the original Halloween, and make this really a celebration of all of those films and bring in the constant references to then go beyond what the expectation was going to be from the normal audience at that time. So I think it's an incredibly clever script and him being, I think this was his first major script that he sold to have this and then the multiple sequels off of it takes a lot. And so I gave him my best secondary performance. I had Wes Craven because I thought that the overall vision of the film, the pacing, how the how tight the script was, the fact that there wasn't any real lulls in the film, I thought that was a master craftsmanship. And then, of course, his uh, cameo, which is kind of an homage to Hitchcock, I would assume, um, where he's the janitor, I thought was kind of humorous, because he uh, looked like... Uh, a lot of the janitors I've known in schools. <laughs> anyway, so that's mine. Yeah, but that was a funny moment. I picked uh, Skeet because I like the intensity that he brought to Billy. And, you know, even though I've seen this movie a bunch of times and I know the ending, there's still moments where I almost like doubt that he's the the killer because he can play sincere and he can play intense. And he also is good at, at being like pushy and aggressive, but not to the point that it's so clear that he's a villain. Like if he was far more angry or 
just, you know, kind of rattled Sydney's cage a bit more intensely, especially like in that first scene, he's very pushy about them having sex, but he's not like throwing her or like doing something that would indicate that he's like a violent person. So it's kind of like he walks that line between like creepy and pushy to innocent or, you know, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Very, very naive. Like when he holds up his fingerprints from the night that he's had to spend in jail because of her, he's just like laying on the guilt so hard. And I just thought he did an excellent job at, at walking that line between like, could he be the one or is he just misunderstood? He has a lot of innocence in his eyes and righteous indignation in his attitude. Keeps you on your toes throughout the course of the movie. Dad, most charismatic. It's my generation. I have no choice. The reason why he's unaccredited, because he didn't want to overshadow everybody. It's Henry Winkler. And then you kill him. I mean, the nicest guy in Hollywood. He doesn't even take credit for the film because he figures if his name appears, everybody will be looking at him instead of the young actors who were in the movie. The minute he starts wheeling around with those scissors, you're like, ooh, you know? I mean, it's Henry Winkler. I can't say anything more than that. Yeah, but you knew Henry Winkler was going to die from the outset. The minute he comes on screen, you know that the Fonz is not a virgin. I picked uh, Matthew Lillard as Stu because he's honestly my favorite part of this movie. I've, I love him as an actor in general. And anytime that he's on screen, I just kind of like light up because he's just, he's goofy and he has like mannerisms and facial expressions that I haven't seen a lot of people pull off. Like the way he kind of like distorts his mouth when he says goofy words is, I find it hilarious. And also he, he is kind of like Stu. He's like, enough of an asshole that you're kind of like, maybe he could be the killer, but he's also goofy enough that you doubt it or that he's he's fun, that you kind of want to go to his party. You want to hang out with him at the video store. And I, I like that he kind of draws you in. And he also makes like light of the situation a lot, which a lot of like teenage boys I would act that way. It's not out of character. Like I'm pretty sure if someone in my high school got murdered, a bunch of people would throw a party the next day and be dorks about it. So I like that he kind of was, he just played it the way I think a a goofy 17-year-old boy would play it. I can't really argue with that at all. (laughs) No. No, I I was probably very similar to some of those goofballs, but uh, it's not to say much for teenage boys. (laughs) I went with uh, actually Nev Campbell, and to mirror some of the points that you made earlier, Dad, She actually kind of reminds me of, I guess if you could say it was another horror film that we covered, Alien. I thought that the progression of her character throughout the movie is very similar to Sigourney Weaver's character in Alien and Aliens, where she becomes a much stronger character throughout the course of each of those films. She has to be simultaneously vulnerable at all times, but also has this kind of heroine quality where she's going to be the one to shoot the villain in the head by the end, and you have to kind of follow her progression to get to that point as she figures everything out. She's not afraid to do what is necessary, eventually crush somebody's head with a TV, and that reminds me of Ellen Ripley a lot. Let's go to best scene then. I have nominated the obvious introduction, Casey Becker's murder. Then I have Sydney attacked at home, Principal Hembry's murder, Tatum's Garage Attack, The Scary Movie Rules, 
the killer is and resolution. And those can kind of morph however you want them. But are there any I missed? No, I like you. I think those are the, the classic ones. I think really the action of the movie is in all of those scenes. The rest of it's kind of exposition to get you in between those. You might be able to add something with the lines or that scene inside the movie store, but I think that's somewhat filler and maybe has a couple of memorable lines, but outside of that, just doesn't strike me as a very classic scene outside of these, what, six, seven that I nominated. So out of these, uh, we'll give our guests the first opportunity, but... What do you think is the best scene? I mean, it's it's very obvious. It's the opening. I mean, it's it's so classic and iconic by now, and it's it's been parodied and made fun of and and replicated a bunch of times. And I honestly like I've seen tons, hundreds of horror movies by now, and I really can't think of an opening that's as upsetting and 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 shocking and memorable as this one, especially like the fact that she's at home about to watch a horror movie. It just puts you in the place of the audience. Like everyone, especially when it came out in the nineties has a memory of going to blockbuster and, you know, settling in for like a comfy night at home with their friends or boyfriend or whoever. And you feel like the most safe then you're just like, nothing can bother me. I'm, I'm at home watching movies and like literally the worst thing possible happens. So I, I can't really think of an opening that has that much of an impact. So dad, being a little bit older than us, I'm trying to put myself in the headspace of what Drew Barrymore was known for, other than maybe being the little sister in the E.T. movie. Is there any other major claims to fame than that? Well, I mean, the the Barrymore family, obviously, was film and stage icon. And so she had a certain reputation. Uh, Early 90s, she was doing some stuff more as an adult. And I think she was always looking for things that took her out of the normal so that she couldn't be typecast. So she'd be in a certain movie that was a comedy, and then she'd turn around and do this, where she's the victim. And I've seen that basically this was set up to kind of be... Janet Lee and Psycho, where the the biggest name star is killed off like right at the beginning of the film and, so, and shocks everybody because of it. So yeah, I, I it is it was surprising to see her dead right off the bat, having not seen the film before. Well, and to your point, I think that the film was partially sold as her being one of the major stars in it, and so for her to have basically 15 minutes in the film, I think by itself already says there's this movie is going to be surprising. And so I would agree. I think it's the most iconic. It's my most indelible moment is that entire 17 minute sequence to open the film. But I do think it is the best scene as well. Harvey Weinstein, surprise, surprise, wanted Drew Barrymore to be like in very, very skimpy clothing for the opening and wanted her to be kind of like the typical blonde bombshell who runs out into the night and gets stabbed. And she and Wes Craven were like, no, we want her to kind of be like an average teen, just like, you know, in normal, like how you would get comfy at night. You're not going to dress in like a sexy costume to watch movies at night. So I just thought it was kind of funny and horrifying all at once that like his kind of sexual perversion was like leaking out as he was trying to give direction on the film. And they, Wes Craven had to like constantly fight off his intrusions because he had opinions that were kind of dumb. Yeah, 
at some point, somebody like Harvey uh, Weinstein needs kind of his own horror franchise to himself. Mm-hmm. Favorite scene, Dad? <laughs> uh, I found it absolutely hilarious. And that that's where I found the most humor was uh, Rose McGowan's death scene. Um, <laughs> because it's like, okay, a guy wearing this mask has killed people. And you're standing there expecting that this is somebody who you know, instead of like, the thought never crossed your mind at all that this could be the killer. And then, of course, you're trying to escape through the dog <laughs> gate. And think, this is going to be a good idea. Obviously, it wasn't. But I just found the whole scene to be funny. And in fact, after the killer raises the door, uh, the garage door, and kills her, he almost kind of like shrugs his shoulders like, "Eh, I didn't have to actually do any real carving in order to kill her. And I just thought that again was, was funny. So that's why this is my favorite scene, because... It just summarizes kind of the slasher mentality and kind of plays with it a bit. So I put there are certain rules to horror movies as my most uh, my, my favorite scene because it's basically and, and I don't know this for sure, but I have the, the gut feeling as a writer myself that Kevin probably wrote this first. Like he probably this was probably the scene that he thought of in his mind before he wrote or had the idea for the rest. And because it kind of is like the entire thesis or point of the movie is being said by Randy in this moment. And the the people on the couch are kind of like the people in the audience. They're kind of like booing or clapping or, or like disagreeing with him as, as it goes along. And he's trying to convince people like, no, this is how it works. And they're, everyone's like, no, like I know what's going to happen. This, you know, like, Oh, I'll be right back. Whatever. No one cares, but it's actually like, the truth. It's actually what's going to happen. So I like that it put the the horror fan or the movie fan like in the like they're they're the correct one. So like instead of being lumped in with just the rest of the audience, it's like the people who've seen this stuff before have like a bit of knowledge over just the average audience member. I really appreciated the fact that after that scene, though, that they're I don't know which movie they're watching necessarily. I know Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. It's Halloween. But regardless, that it became its own character during the resolution of the film, that that noise was made or noise was made from the movie that threw off the killer for a bit. And so it kind of had its own characteristic in the background to the eventuality of being the TV that ends up smashing Stu. Yeah, and I like that it's kind of funny because Jamie Kennedy is playing Randy and he yells at the scream, Jamie behind you, and there's ghost faces behind him and he's he's a Jamie as well, so... I thought that was a funny little thing. Yeah, that's a good point. My favorite scene, though, I always like the resolution of things, particularly when it's something that's going to make me nervous. So when you shoot the killer in the head, that's always going to be one of my favorite moments because that means the intense parts are going to be over. (laughs) I know, I'm pathetic. Nothing says horror newbie like the ending. (laughs) That's my favorite part. I am who I am. No worries. I get it. I've already given my most indelible. What is your most indelible? The corn syrup line where Billy is licking his fingers. And it's basically the reveal that he's the bad guy just to both us and Sydney. And that like just 
that moment because it's it's creepy and it's gross. Like I don't licking fake blood is just gross. And also just Nev's performance in that moment is also really good because like her whole world is just like dropping out from under her. And she thought that her boyfriend, who she wrongly convinced, you know, the police that he was guilty is now like was being stabbed. And now, oh, it was all a ruse to upset her and kill everyone basically she cares about in her life. So it's just like when I think of Scream, it's actually the first like scene that pops in my head. I like the ending simply because of the reveal, which quite actually kind of shocked me that there were two. And I mean, once it happened, I was like, oh, okay, I can understand this. I didn't think about it. That's what kind of will stick in my mind, that it was a little bit surprising. Well, more than a bit. So this is a good opportunity for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com, find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do, unfortunately. Vincent Gill, 83, an Australian actor. He was in Mad Max, Stone, and uh, Prisoner. I think he's most famous for playing, is it Knight Rider in the original Mad Max films? Yes. So Mel Gibson was an American, but for whatever reason was uh, spent most of his uh, early or late teens, early 20s in Australia. So when Mad Max was done, it was primarily an Australian film crew, but he was part of that. But Leon Vitale... English actor, and he was both, or most well-known as the assistant to our own Stanley Kubrick. He was an actor in Barry Lyndon, was involved or was uh, a key participant in uh, Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, and the uh, Fenn Street Gang. I think what I saw in his obituary was that he was known as Kubrick's right-hand guy, And from every movie from, I believe, right after Barry Lyndon, so it would have been The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut, he had significant hand in crafting and developing those three movies specifically. But you are correct, his primary or his first big acting performance was as the stepson to the title character in Barry Lyndon. From what I'm gathering, Kubrick, who tended to be rather pricklish and... uh demanding. Yes. He kind of was the softer person who would uh, kind of smooth ruffled feathers is from what I'm gathering by some of the uh, writing. We also had Mildred Corman, 97, American actress and model. She was in the original Our Game, which was the predecessor to The Little Rascals. That was a um, bunch of short films that were in theaters in the old days of film when uh, you would spend an evening or an afternoon or in the movie house and you'd see shorts and uh, serials and newsreels and everything. So she was involved in that. And as she got older, she became a a model, uh, had a long career outside of film, but she passed as well. I think she was one of the few remaining silent film actresses to still be alive up until recently. 
Oddly enough, I did see also in her obituary that her mother was a still photographer who did a lot of work for another silent film star, a favorite of yours, Harold Lloyd. Yes. So Robert Q. Lovett, 95, is American film editor, taking of Pelham 123, The Cotton Club, and A Bronx Tale. He actually was nominated for an Academy Award for film editing for The Cotton Club. Oddly enough, I could not find an obituary for him. Oh. I searched. It was it was difficult, but even with the middle initial in there, I just couldn't seem to find one. And then lastly, uh, Virginia Patton, 97, American actress, the last surviving member of the It's a Wonderful Life cast. She was Harry Bailey's wife in the film. She also was in Black Eagle and Lucky Stiff. She left acting in the late mid to late 40s and um, had a life outside of Hollywood for uh, a very long and healthy time. And so we remember all of these people and their contributions to film and TV with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. We'll let our guest have the first crack. The best line for me is Stu's I'll be right back after the end of the the rules of the horror movie scene. Because especially once you've rewatched this and you know that he's one of the killers, it's it because it's like it's funnier and it's more ominous. And I like how he he kind of is just it turns everything into a joke. And I just think it's you know, in, in a way, he's also facing death because he's saying, oh, if you do one of these three things, you're going to die. And he's like, well, I'm going to go do that thing right now because I don't care. I feel like invincible, which is kind of the problem that billions do have is they think that they're invincible. So I just I've always liked his like really goofy expression when he says, I'll be right back. My first nominee. And to me, this is just as subversive. Tatum. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. <laughs> Randy, I never thought I'd be so happy to be a virgin. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Did you have another nominee? No, I just have a funniest, but I'll save that for when we get there. Oh, no, we do those combined, so go ahead. Oh, we do them all combined? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. So when Gail says, I'll send you a copy, and then she gets punched in the face, like, I just think that's just a... She was so, it was one of those like very fake nice moments where she was just like, oh, nice to see you. I'll send you a copy. And then she gets decked by Sydney. I, I almost like laugh out loud when it, whenever it happens, even though I know it's coming. I actually like the Tatum line after it kind of reliving it because it makes it even funnier for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I have Gail. If I'm right about this, I could save a man's life. Do you know what that would do for my book sales? Said like a journalist. My next nominee, phone voice. Do you like scary movies? Sydney, what's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who is always running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. It's insulting. Dewey, what did Mama tell you? When I wear this badge, you treat me like a man of the law. Randy, the police are always off track with this shit. If they just watch prom night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it. A very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect. Randy, Jamie Lee was always a virgin in horror f- movies. 
She didn't show her tits till she was legit. Um, there's one other line I just thought of. It's when right after the you have to respect me line that Dewey says to Tatum and Tatum says the the janitor is your superior, especially since like the janitor is portrayed by Wes Craven. And so like technically Wes Craven is Dewey's boss. So <laughs> Casey, who's there? Ghostface. Never say who's there. Don't you watch scary movies? It's a death wish. You might as well come out to investigate a strange noise or something. Randy, careful. This is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last scare. And my personal favorite line of the movie, Stu, did you really call the police? Sydney, you bet your sorry ass I did. Stu crying, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. (laughs) It's the most absurd line in the movie. And it's ad-lib, too. It wasn't in the script. He, he came up with that on his own, which makes it so much better. Good note. I didn't find that one, so. All right. Dad, did you have any left? Nope, I'm good. All right. We ready for the Stanley rubric? Yes. Yep, yep. Let's grade this one out, then. Legacy is up first. Dad, did you want to try your hand at it? Sure. Dividing it up, industry and the public. I I don't know how you could have that many sequels without it being a perfect five for legacy for the industry, because obviously they realized they had a moneymaker and uh, something that uh, a formula that they could draw from, which is using more well-known actors and actresses. So I gave it a five for that. For the public, it's still horror is still a genre. I mean, This was 1996. I never really had any real concern or any real lack of interest in these. It's just I ended up marrying a wife who uh, or marrying a woman who would get just absolutely freaked out by the sheer thought of watching Silence of the Lambs for the longest time. So I didn't watch anything that was even close throughout the uh, 90s and early 2000s. So there's, it still has a certain niche to that extent. So for the public, I went with a 3.5 because there was a huge group in public who just were not going to necessarily, but it did extremely well, and I think predominantly with a younger audience. So I went with that, so I'm at an 8.5 for total. To be fair, if you really want to understand how scared my mother is, she's still creeped out by John Malkovich, what, 30 years later from him being in the line of fire? Because he was really just intimidating on the phone calls with Clint Eastwood. So imagine how she'd do with Ghostface. (laughs) There's a reason you didn't let her watch Silence of the Lambs until, what, three years ago? Yes. I had to wait for her to go away to a conference so I could watch the film. Oh, boy. So I'm a little bit different than you. I actually, I think if we end up with five for the industry on just about every movie we put out, that it kind of loses a little bit of meaning. And I don't think the industry respects horror films. I just, I don't. There are the few and far between that will occasionally get nominated for things. And if you account for... Jaws being a horror film or The Silence of the Lambs. Those are the outliers as opposed to the run of the mill. 
Now, I do think that the critics liked this more than most horror films that I think they'd become tired by. So something that was new, fresh, and subversive really caught their attention. But I don't think that just the variety of the sequels by itself necessitates that this is a complete five when you compare it to a lot of the other fives within the industry that we've given up to this point. That being said, you have a lot of people that kind of got their star power off of this movie. Nev Campbell, we talked about, is kind of known for being in this franchise. David Arquette pretty much made his name off of this. And a lot of people associated with this franchise have a name because of being part of this. And to a certain degree, and maybe this isn't a good thing, but it kind of saved Dimension Films, which was a established part of the Weinstein company at that point and Miramax. So them being able to have their 90s run, this has to be part of that. And so anything that comes after it, the Goodwill Huntings and the talented Mr. Ripley's or the stuff going into the, the early 2000s that they were very successful for or Shakespeare in Love is kind of on the back of this being somewhat successful to keep their company afloat because it was kind of in jeopardy at this point in time. So I went with a four for the industry, but I would be persuaded up to maybe a 4.5. I just can't quite get to a five. As far as the audience, I think it is a very popular horror film. And obviously the dollars followed, but we'll save that a little bit more for impact significance. I do think it's waned a little bit, given that there have been so many years in between most of the major installments. There's the original trilogy that came out three movies within, what, five years or so? And then you have an 11-year break until about 2011 for Scream 4, and then this last year with Scream 5 that's kind of promoted getting to a, a Scream 6 that we talked about earlier. I think there's an audience for it, but is it the big fandom that we've talked about with a lot of other films? Probably not. So I also went with a four on that for an eight total. V, what do you have? So not going to be surprising here, and it's probably because I'm biased as hell, but it's a five out of five for both. And and my reasoning for that, because I obviously wouldn't give every horror movie I like a five, because Scream revitalized the horror genre. So even if the industry doesn't you know, respect it as much as a drama might be or a crime movie might get, it was, you know, it was dying and they brought it back. And there was a whole string of movies that came out afterwards. I Know What You Did Last Summer, which has the same writer, The Faculty, Cherry Falls, Bride of Chucky, all have very similar vibes to them. And then we've got the three the three sequels in under five years, which is very unheard of for horror. Like getting even a sequel is difficult and having them, they're actually pretty decent quality. Um, they kind of obviously go downhill a little bit compared to the first, but they're pretty decent as far as sequels go because there are some that can get really weird and stupid. And also it kind of introduced the meta commentary into the world essentially. And we now have tons of movies and, and especially horror movies that have self-referential stuff like Cabin in the Woods or Dale and Tucker versus Evil. They all like have a bit of a randiness to them that they're all like, oh, we, we've seen this before. The killer is going to come in through this door. Like they all make references to something that, that we already know in a cult, like has been culturally established by horror movies. And that stuff just like wouldn't exist with, without it. Maybe they would have come along eventually, but I 
I see it from like just impacting horror. It had like a huge, huge, big impact. And there are some diehard fans, like even though you guys may not be in the horror world yourselves, there are some series, there's like a several YouTube channels dedicated to Scream. There's guys who try to figure out which one, like was it Stu or was it Billy? And they like use computer animation to recreate the murders to try to figure out who did what. So there are like, even if it may not be as big of a fan base as like Star Wars or something else, it's the fans are are there and they they take it seriously and they're very upset. Nev Campbell will not be returning for Scream 6 and they are upset. So I think it has a big audience impact, even though it has waned, obviously, over the years. They're still they're still out there and, and people still like it. All right. So then the average between the three of us is an 8.83 Let's move to impact significance. Now, just to, as a refresher, this is within the five years after its initial release, which would accompany both sequels, so we can take that into account, as well as the re-release of this movie. Dad, what do you think? I had 3.5 for the industry simply because critics... I mean, the critics are the critics, and they're not necessarily huge horror fans... There was a certain element, um, this had to be made by a smaller independent uh, film company. So I wanted the 3.5 for that, for, but for the public, it did well. And it, while it was still, it was still limited to a certain element of horror, there were horror fans who would obviously be interested. There was a small level of crossover or some crossover. So I went with a four for that. So I went with a 7.5 total for impact and significance. In fact, I think I might just give it an extra half point for the industry simply because they almost greenlighted both of the sequels after just the initial testing of this film. They, they obviously knew they had something that would be a moneymaker. So 3.5 and... and uh, what did I say, four for the public? So it was 7.5. V, what do you got for impact significance? Is it scored out of five or out of 10? So we still divide this one like legacy, so it'll be five and five. Okay, so for, for its impact, I would say it's like a 4.5 out of five. So it's not perfect because not everyone is a horror fan, but within... The five years, it clearly made a big splash. And on top of it, like that, that scream mask was like one of the number one selling like Halloween masks. I mean, it still is a bestseller, but during that time, it was like everywhere. And it clearly like affected the, like it had an impact on the industry because there were tons of kind of copycat movies and pair. I forgot to mention all the scary movies. There's like six scary movies and they all are some version of a parody of Scream for the most part. So that definitely had has an impact. I would tend to agree. So did you go with 4.5 for both sets for yeah, a nine? Yeah, 4.5 for both, yeah. Okay, just wanted to clarify there. But I would tend to agree on most of those points, given the movies that you mentioned that were coming out very shortly after the ripple effect within the genre itself as you mentioned, the rise in Hollywood costume sales around that point in time. And we already mentioned one just kind of outlier, and it's one of the reasons that I gave a movie like Jaws such a big credit, was it had effects on the population with smaller pieces. 
during Jaws that summer, nobody went swimming. After this movie came out, people started using more caller ID. I remember us getting caller ID, and we didn't see the film. It would be about right 1997, Dad, right? Somewhere in that area, yeah. Yeah, so if it's affecting people who didn't see the movie, and even I knew who kind of roughly was Ghostface, despite not seeing this movie for 20-plus years after the fact, I think it has an impact on the audience, probably bigger than the industry itself. I think the industry, it's somewhat muted because of what the subject material was. And again, the lack of respect for these types of movies and the fact that they were played up to be somewhat cliche. Yes, this was fresh and it kind of reintroduced a lot of the newer ideas that we've kind of borrowed from as horror films really kind of turned a corner and took a a different form after this. But I think that it's a five for audience and I'll give a four for the industry for a nine overall myself as well. So the average between us is an 8.5. Novelty. Actually, I'm going to let our guest go first on this one. I think you're the most likely to give the full rounded overview of novelty for this film. Even though it was a like a rebirth to the horror genre, I don't think it was like reinventing the wheel per se. So it is very like, as we mentioned, it, it did have this big change. It was very meta, but you know, people have been breaking the fourth wall since even before. So like there's moments of people breaking the fourth wall in literature back in the 1800s or 1700s. So the like concept of like kind of doing a wink and a nod to your audience is not new. It's, you know, they didn't invent anything like that has never been seen before. And even if you take out a lot of the self-referential part, it does still play out kind of like a typical slasher. So even though it, it is smart about what it's doing, there's still a masked killer stalking teenage girls in, you know, in the night. It's, um, so it's not like a completely new, never before seen genre in the realm of horror. So I um, like I would give it probably like an eight out of 10 for for being new. It's it's new, but it's not like the newest thing that's ever happened. I would agree with many of those points, but I ended up at a much higher score, to be honest, given that this isn't my genre or my expertise area. And I am trying to continue to branch out because I think that's the important part of this show. This, though, seems unlike everything that it was kind of parodying up to this point, that it was trying to subvert all of those. And the wink and the nod was not necessarily a part of this genre. And so by extension, it's kind of a tweener or a cross genre thing, especially if you take the Bob Weinstein point and think of it as somewhat of a comedy And by that extension, I'm tempted to go all the way up to a 10, but because the similar points that you made were ones I was going to make myself, it relies on a lot of the horror conventions in order to subvert those. I'm going to end up at a 9.5, even though I'm tempted to get up to a 10. I thought long and hard about this. And I mean, this is well down the road from Nightmare on Elm Street, the Halloween, the Friday the 13th. So it wasn't new to that extent. What was new was using more well-known actors and actresses and making almost kind of fun of the genre within the the realm of the film. So I gave it points up for that. So I went with an eight for novelty simply because 
it gave it a fresh approach. It, it's, it tried not to take itself so seriously. And I think that that was uh, something unique and very novel. I'm sorry, I missed your number eight. So I'm oddly the outlier on that category. So again, an 8.5 average between us. Classicness. Dad, we let you usually lead off here. The uh, the most iconic characters at the end are the females, which is a good thing to see. The only thing I give it points down for and why I ended up uh, at my number, which is 8.5, is, is the cast was very white. And there wasn't a lot of diversity. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I just, from a classic standpoint, I I had a problem with that. I had a problem with kind of uh, the stereotypes of certain aspects of the people from high school that have kind of permeated through. So I had to give it a little bit down for that. So I went an 8.5. You know, I was going to try and defend it a little bit on its diversity there for a second, but then I thought, this is supposed to be a California high school, and there isn't one Hispanic kid? Yeah. V, what do you think? For classicness, I I gave it a 9 out of 10 because I would kind of describe it as a new classic, like a, I mean, though it's not post-millennium, but like close to the millennium classic, because something like Psycho or Halloween or Friday the 13th would be... I think a 10 out of 10 as far as horror classics are concerned or my beloved The Shining uh, because they kind of set the ground rules that Scream plays with. So I don't feel like it's a true classic in like the sense that it laid the bricks for future films to be made off of the way those ones were, but it still definitely contributed a major part to the genre. And and I feel like it aged relatively well, except obviously for diversity. I mean, they're supposed to be in like a very bougie Napa Valley town, so it kind of makes sense. But I mean, I was surprised actually upon rewatch that there wasn't even like the token black friend anywhere because they actually have a black couple in scary movie portraying one of the like teenage couples in Scream. So they actually like the parody is more diverse than the actual movie. And like some of the attitudes towards sexuality is a bit outdated, like constantly referring to Maureen as a slut or the town tramp or something. And because as far as everyone else is concerned, she's a rape victim. So like the fact that even though it turns out it's not true, that Cotton actually didn't, they had consensual sex and that's discovered more in, in Scream 2 and 3 that he's, you know, surprised he's obviously not the killer Billy is and that she wasn't raped. But it's like the fact that you're talking about a murder victim who may or may not have been raped as like the town tramp or like, oh, she's no Sharon Stone. And and using phrases like sexually anorexic is like politically incorrect for various for both reasons, for like the sexual part and for making fun of an eating disorder. So it's like there's some little like sexist jabs here and there, but they're not so egregious and bad that I don't feel comfortable watching it again. I would agree that it is a bit insensitive and frankly ironic that we're not paying really a lot of respect to a potential rape victim in a Harvey Weinstein produced film. But, well, I mean, we know what we're getting when the Weinstein logo pops across the screen half the time. So... That aside, I would agree that most horror films, at least the ones that it's parodying, are usually much worse when it comes to the sexuality of these movies. 
I mean, and they're constantly making self-referential claims against it. The big-breasted girl is going to head out up the stairs instead of out the front door. Or if you have sex, that equals death. All of the things that are supposedly cliches in this, that is supposedly a precursor of expecting Puritanism, that horror films in some ways were expected to be the... I'm trying to think of the right word, but the abstinence classes for you in the in cinema. And I don't quite understand why we had those, that somehow sexuality is a thing to be feared. So again, that aside, I think this movie is actually a lot better on some of those things, but I'll take some of these points individually. Strong female heroines getting the upper hand on some douchey guys will always age well. I don't really care which generation you're from. That's going to end up being one of the best parts of the movie. And we already established that Sydney is probably one of the best female heroines that we have from this genre. The fact that it defies most of the conventions up to that point is a point in its favor also in my book. And my only issues with the film are really a lack of motivation in some of the storytelling and some of the deaths that aren't particularly realistic to me or the attacks that don't follow basic knowledge like hmm a beer bottle exploding on your head that's been thrown at you at will at the very least should knock you unconscious if not outright kill you so for you to somehow survive what was it three or four of them thrown at you that explode over your head and then somehow I'm going to get to the garage door thing and how unrealistic that is, but it just slightly knocks it down in my book. I ended up at a nine as well. Once again, we have an 8.83 average between us. Rewatchability. I think this is where we're going to have some fairly different scores. So we always let our guest who picked the movie go first on this category. What do you have down? It's a 10 out of 10 for me because I've, I own it on, on DVD. I, I watch it fairly regularly for some reason like I get this like big nostalgia like jump from it because I I love everything 90s so it kind of is like I get transported back to like what is a simpler time for me because I was a child back then so being able to like pop in a blockbuster video on one of those TVs that had like the built-in VHS and and just like I don't know there's a there's a lot of 90s-ness about it that I, I love, and I find that part really easy to rewatch. I also like the goofy teen dynamics and how it is. Like, it becomes, you know, once you've seen it a few times, it becomes more predictable. The scares are not as, you know, when they're coming. So it becomes really easy to rewatch, and I, and I know that it might be hard for people to think that, but once you see it a few times, it does. It does become more, like, a fun roller coaster experience versus like a terrifying encounter. I have a curiosity for if I were to w- watch this a second time, where my impression might lie. But, Dad, what do you think? I always say that a seven is where I am if I'll rewatch a film. Well, I gave it a 7.5 because I actually enjoyed it by the end. I didn't know quite what to expect and where things were. Being a uh, 58-year-old man who's going to be 59, it's kind of, you're always told, music, films, your tastes get more narrow as you age. I find mine are actually broadening because there's certain things I like 
or I have more appreciation for now that I never really thought I would like before. So, you know, I actually thought about watching at some point Scream 2 just to see what it was. So I want the 7.5 because I have a problem because of the fact I'm having a hard time understanding watching this film, knowing where all the plot points are and finding whether I'd enjoy it. But I guess maybe I'll try it once and see. All right. Fair enough. I'll let you keep thinking that your tastes are uh, widening. (laughs) As far as it goes, I'm going to kind of return to some of the, uh, or a similar formula that I had when we came out of like Alien and Aliens. These are movies that I could passively watch and I'm not going to actively turn off, but this isn't necessarily always going to be my go-to for a good time. And so it's going to be a little bit harder for me. It's just never been something that I'm attracted to being scared. Scary movies are not particularly enjoyable for me most of the time, but it's also kind of straddling the line between something that I wouldn't put on myself, but I'm not objecting to versus something that I will kind of go out of my way not to watch. So I kind of fall at about a 4.5 straddling the difference of that. Sorry. It's okay. So the average between us then is a 7.33. For audience score, we have a 85% for Google users and an 82% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.35. So to repeat the categories, we had an 8.83 for Legacy, an 8.5 for Impact Significance, an 8.5 for Novelty, 8.83 for Classicness, 7.33 for Rewatchability, and an 8.35 for audience score, giving us a final total of a final total of 50.34. And putting it on the list, in between Shrek and Taxi Driver, Strange Bedfellows yet again. All right. So remaining questions. I will let our guest go first here. What are the things that you wish you could ask but didn't have the formal setting to ask? It's actually a question that no one has an answer to, unfortunately. No one actually knows who who killed who. So no one actually knows to the actual detail if Stu killed Casey or if Billy killed Casey or, and going forward all the other victims. There are a lot of theories and a lot of things that indicate it, but Wes Craven doesn't know and he is deceased so we can't ask him, but both Skeet and Matthew do not know because they actually would switch places and film as Ghostface and they don't know which takes were used and that kind of information has kind of been lost to time. So I wish I could figure out who was actually in Ghostface costume each time. I think I have it somewhat figured out, but I just wish that there was like a definitive answer, but unfortunately there, that will never, never happen. And there's these two scenes and I don't know if you guys caught them on your, your first watch that I think are ridiculous. And I don't know why they're even in there and if it's supposed to be Stu or Billy or if it's supposed to be a prankster but there's a scene where Tatum and Sydney are on her like big like wraparound veranda porch and you see Ghostface run in the bushes and then later they're at the supermarket and you see his reflection in the freezer like then nothing happens after that like no one is killed in the following scenes for a while because it's the next scene is Stu's party so no one is actually being killed like the you know, Fonzie was killed and then hours pass and uh, the party happens and then, you know, they come out of there with the woodwork killing people. So 
like, why would you, if you were a murderer, put on the costume in which you have murdered people and go out in public? Because like your risk of being caught or seen by somebody is just like, you know, this town is starting to be on the lookout for this psycho killer. And so if it's, if it's Billy or Stu, it's ridiculously stupid because why are you walking around dressed like the person everyone's looking for? And if you're a teenager, it's also really stupid because you're implicating yourself in a murder. So I just, I know that it's there to add like a bit of spookiness and to freak the audience out that like, oh, he's so close. But like a lot of fans think that those two scenes are like kind of dumb and, and kind of made it more cheesy than it was. So I, I want to know what was the point behind those and, and who was really there? And, and the other question I wish I could ask like Billy is why not just like kill the whole damn Prescott family in one go. Like there was already enough DNA evidence to probably frame the boyfriend of Maureen Cotton. And he could have, if he really just wanted to kill Sydney, he should have just killed Sydney a year ago and saved us all this trouble. I mean, it's less entertaining, but I kind of just um, kind of wondered why he chose to wait a full year and continue to torture her. I guess he's just a sadist, but I, I wish that, that had an answer. I guess I would kind of like to see what ended up happening to Courtney Cox's character at the end. Um, my guess is she ended up on one of the 24 hour news channels as they were suddenly becoming more prevalent and became uh, kind of that genre. But other than that, in general, I would just comment that it kind of reminded me of the fact that you were just a baby at the time, but my neighbor, who we shared a common driveway with, came over and said, I don't know if you're interested, but you have to read this. And so he hands me a book. And uh, Thomas Harris, Silence of the Lambs. And I read the book, and I couldn't put it down. I think I finished the book in like a day and uh, ended up getting Red Dragon, which was the pre for that. So at some point in time, I had an interest in this, but I think in part, I kind of got out of it. I had small children, a wife who was adverse. So, but again, I'll go back to the fact that I think it kind of broadens my knowledge, my respect, my palate for different genre. Fair enough. So, few of the questions that I had down. What's the reasoning behind the uh, attacks on Principal Hembry, Casey Becker, or Steve, since none of them have to do with the Prescott family? If we're meant to believe that the originating action of the film and the only motive that Billy has is that he's getting back at the Prescott family specifically, then why do we need to kill everybody else? It seems like an unnecessary chance. And given that the only other motive we have was is he roped his friend Stu in because they're psychotic, I just don't understand what the killing spree was about. And yes, they do try and explain that with no motive is really millennium. But to me, I'm a guy with plot and motive and it's never going to quite stick with me. So I can answer that a little bit if you want me to. Go right ahead. I'm assuming that this is part of the sequels, yes? No, I mean, just sort of the fact of like being a nerd and watching it a few times. So the part of the, the reasoning is 
Casey is the ex-girlfriend of Stu, and it seemed like her dumping him for Steve is like a big blow to his ego. And she also sits next to Sydney in first period, so it seems like they picked her to purposefully get under Sydney's skin that like this, and you see her looking over at the empty chair, white waiting for police questioning. So that's largely believed to be the reason why Casey and Steve got in trouble. There's a chance that if Steve never showed up, he might've never been killed. It was, uh, but I think part of it was that she was uh, an ex lover. Cause you know, he, he kills Tatum and doesn't seem to care too much or Billy kills Tatum. And then I think they kill the principal because they need a distraction to get all the party goers out except for the main cast. And when it's announced, you know, that his body is hung up on the goalpost, which it's most likely one of the guys calling, or Billy, because Stu's in the room, calling to say that that happened. I think they kill the principal for that reason as like the distraction so that they can get Sydney and Randy and Tatum alone in the house to kill them. Now, I do know for a fact that that actually was written into the story because part of the criticism from the Weinsteins was is there are 30 pages in the original script that didn't have a murder. So they introduced Principal Hembry only as a character to be murdered for that specific purpose. And Roundabout Way does actually introduce the resolution of the third act allowing them to get everybody out of the house except the principal characters. So it, it ended up actually working out for them, but there's really no real reason for Principal Hembry to be killed other than you needed it for your movie to kind of work and have murders strung throughout it. Yeah, and if you think these motives are flimsy, if you guys ever get around to watching the sequels, they get even more flimsy. So <laughs> it's... um. <laughs> I know it doesn't make sense a lot but again i'm a plot guy and so it's just gonna always slightly stick in my craw two why is billy so adamant about having sex with sydney if his plan is to eventually kill her why not again i just i go back to the same question you had why does he need to string this along for another whole year if his entire sociopath Okay. They don't need to have a reason. They're a sociopath. They're sick in the head enough that they kind of believe horror movies are real life, and they kind of develop this formula that they can only kill people according to this like horror formula. So the fact that she's a virgin is messing with that because they've realized that the virginal woman in most horror movies lives. So I think, and because her mom was murdered and what she thinks was raped. She's going to be sexually anorexic as she describes. And I think maybe it took a year because she was like so mentally traumatized by her mom's death that she didn't want to have sex. So I think he was waiting for her to sleep with him and it took a whole year, but that's the best I can think of for why it took a whole year. But I feel like if I was a psychotic person, I mean, I guess it's hard to tell because I'm not insane. If I was someone who wanted to kill someone, waiting a whole year would seem like torture. I would be like, let's just I'll just do them all in in one day because I hate them that much. I agree, but that's as good a reasoning as I think we're ever going to have for those. So my last point, and you both can correct me if I'm wrong, but... We will. As far as I'm aware, automatic garage door openers always have those safety like sensors on the side. So her crawling through the doggy door 
she'd be lining up with the sensors, meaning that the garage door would not lift. Yeah, it, it shouldn't. It's a dumb death. Like, that's the dumbest one in the movie. The other ones are at least, it's a stabbing. You can establish that that is actually re- realistic, but... And in the second one is Stu because I don't think a TV falling on your head from that short distance probably would crush it in the way that they're expecting. But oh, he wasn't crushed; he was electrocuted. Also, something kind of ridiculous. I mean, the you'd have to, his head would have to go through the picture tube, and it almost takes a bullet to go through a picture tube because they're really quite. You guys are used to flat screens and such, but I grew up with the old big picture tubes and uh, the glass on there. I mean, you could basically take a baseball bat and hit it and it wouldn't do anything. Yeah. Even Matthew himself has said that he doesn't think Stu could have died that way and that he's been hoping for like him to be re-resurrected for a sequel because he doesn't think that death was like convincing enough. And so I, I agree with that. All right. So that's just a few of my nitpicks, but frankly, these movies weren't nitpick. So final thoughts for the week, Dad? Uh, none. I just always find it fascinating that we can go from Scream this week to Sound of Music next week. Oh, and we did Rashomon last week. Yes. And Interstellar the week before. So we've had, we've been jumping all over the place. Yes. I don't really have any major thoughts for the week either, so we'll turn it over to our guest. Thank you for being with us. Any additional thoughts that you'd like to add for the evening? Well, first off, since Sound of Music is your next one, I just think that real-life Nazis are scarier than Ghostface. So just in in Scream's defense, even though the Sound of Music is much more sweet and wholesome, the enemy, I think, is uh, far more terrifying. But as far as... What's going on with me? You can find me at vpmorris.com. I'm at twriterepeat on Twitter and Instagram. And my books, Shadowcast and Dead Ringer, are both found on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. I had a podcast that uh, ended in 2021. It's a fictional podcast called The Dead Letters, and it's basically a story I wrote. It's not too scary for anyone who's a scaredy cat. It's more of a paranormal thriller. So if anyone's interested in listening to a a short story podcast. Check that one out. I feel you were speaking to me there a little bit uh, on the scaredy cat. (laughs) No, just teasing a little bit, but uh, definitely thank you for being on and uh, expanding our repertoire here. Like I've said for, I guess this is season three. This is always an area that we've kind of wanted to expand into. And so this is always a good test case for us. Yeah, um, I've loved being on. This was super fun. If you guys want a guide into the world of horror again, I'm around. Well, we may have to make you our official horror expert, especially since we eventually have to get into The Shining. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) So we have plenty more horror films to eventually discuss. I think there are quite a few classics, The Exorcist, Halloween, etc., that... uh, we, we definitely need somebody who is a big fan that can balance at least me out, since apparently my dad's much more a fan of these than I am. I actually have a great anecdote about The Shining, but when, when we do it, I'll use the anecdote. Fair enough. I am not going to argue with you there. So this is a good place to stop for the week. Again, thank you to our guest, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening. 
Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing one of the most celebrated musicals of all time, The Sound of Music from 1965, directed by Robert Wise, written by Ernest Lehman, music by Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein, and Erwin Kostel, and starring Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in in our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 